we've been going through the ten plagues of Egypt, right? Well, this, this chapter takes a break from that because we're about to get into the tenth plague, which is the craziest, most aggressive, most horrible, most wonderful plague of all of them. It's unbelievable. And before we get into it, God kind of says, okay, you're not ready yet. <laughs> we need to take a break for a chapter and reset our hearts, reset our lives so that we can set our perspective so that we can handle what's going to happen. Because this next plague, the plague of the Passover, is so incredible that it will blow you away if you just go right into it. So, And I was planning on just going right into it. In fact, as I was, I was studying these chapters, I was like, okay, chapter 11 is just kind of like a, a prequel. And we know prequels are never as good as the real thing. So we want to... <laughs> We want to we just get right in there. Maybe I'll just skim through 11 and go into 12 when the Passover really starts. And then the Lord spoke to me and was like, no, this is a very important chapter. And if you go too fast into 12, our hearts may not be ready. So that's why we're, we're going to um, reset our perspective. And our perspective here is this. This chapter is going to remind us of God's undeserved riches of grace that are given to the children of Israel. And it's going to remind us why he's judging the Egyptians. Now, if we want to reset everything, we go back to the beginning of Exodus and remember the entire book of Exodus is about redemption. It's about God redeeming his people, taking his people out of bondage and into freedom. And that's the whole book. And this is, we're going to kind of remind ourselves of why that topic is really important. We could easily forget that God is working a blessing for his people and he, uh, we could also forget that he needs to defeat these evil workers, this, this picture of the world, this picture of Satan in Egypt. And forgetting this would cause us to get lost in the fog of whys and, and wherefores. Just this, why is this happening? Why is God so mean to kill the firstborn of every living thing in Egypt? Why? But we could get lost in that if we don't have God redirecting our perspective in this chapter. So there's three preachers, and they sat discussing the best positions for prayer while a, a telephone repairman was working nearby. And uh, the first one, uh, you know, had his, his preacher stuff on, his little collar, and he said, kneeling is best for prayer. The second one said, no, never. I get the best results with standing with my hands outstretched to heaven. And then the third one said, you're both wrong. The most effective position for prayer is lying prostrate with your face on the floor. God really hears you then. Then the telephone repairman couldn't contain himself any longer, and he said, hey, fellas, the best praying I ever had was hanging upside down by a telephone cord. See, these guys were so into their thing. They needed their perspective to be refreshed and reset. You know, sincere desperation is the only thing that matters in prayer, right? It does not matter what you look like or what position you're in. It's your heart, whether you're praying like your life depended on it. That's the only thing that matters. Well, we're not talking about prayer today, but that shows how a perspective reset can really help us. Let's get into our text. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here. 
When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So, you have God resetting our our view here. He's kind of taking a break from the narrative, and we're going to get back into the narrative. And if you would remember, the last thing that happened is Moses was in Pharaoh's sight. He was in Pharaoh's company, and Pharaoh was in, they were having darkness, and Moses was saying, why don't you guys repent and just let us go? And Pharaoh's like, I hate you. I want you to get out of here. Well, we're going to get right back into that at the end of this chapter, but we're having a little, a little parenthesis, a little break, a little backup first, where God is reminding Moses of the good he has planned, okay? Now, this, this corresponds with a couple of verses earlier in Exodus, one of them being chapter 3, verse 21, which we already studied, but it said, I will give this, people fa- give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you shall not go empty-handed. You shall not go empty-handed. And he's referring to what we're talking about here, where they're going to get these articles of silver and gold, And then if we were to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, when Abraham, the first Israelite, when he was talking with God, God made him a promise, and he gave him a foreshadow and a prophecy of all that would happen. And he said in Genesis 15, verse 14, also the nation whom they serve, Egypt, I will judge, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Possessions. So here we call it silver and gold and jewels, and then you have, they're not going to go empty-handed, and then you have Genesis saying it's going to be great possessions. Why is this in the Bible? These riches are symbolic for us. What was literal and tangible for for Israel is they actually had gold and silver and jewels, is a picture of the immeasurable riches of God's grace that have been given to you and to me. I want to read with you guys, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, this is an awesome verse that helps us to see what this is. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. And let me, let me go all the way back to verse 4, just for kicks. But God, who is rich in mercy... Rich, because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So, you ever wonder what we're going to be doing forever and ever and ever in eternity in heaven? Because it seems like playing a harp will get kind of boring, right? Well, that's not what heaven's about. The Bible tells us right here what heaven's about. Heaven is going to be God explaining to you and showing you and just having a great time filling you in on how rich you are in Christ Jesus, how much 
God has given you by giving you his son. The life of his son has so much value that it will take God, who's a pretty good teacher, eternity to teach you how much you have in being in Christ. He has a plan of what you're going to be doing in heaven, and it's going to be him just showering you with more and more understanding of the blessings that you have in Christ Jesus right now. It's already been given to you. That's how we live now is by this riches of life that Jesus has given to us. And what is it? What do these jewels look like in our life? What is this life? Why is this life? Why is this life of Jesus better than everything out there in the world? Peace. He promises peace. He says, I'll give you peace the world cannot give you and it'll never be able to take it away. No matter what you go through, you'll have peace. That's one of these jewels, one of these riches. And Trust me, if you're one that struggles with peace, to be able to have peace, you would sell everything to be able to have it, right? When it's just a war and you're like, man, I wish I had peace. Jesus says, you have peace. I'll give it to you. I have it. I'll give it to you. It's my riches. They're now yours. Everything that's mine is yours. How about joy? For someone who has no joy, who struggles with joy, to have joy is a great treasure. We, I probably take it for granted because I'm very happy. My wife makes me very happy. My kids make me very happy. You guys make me happy sometimes. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. You guys are wonderful. <laughs> how, about, how about love? Anyone ever struggle to feel loved? Or Man, I, to be loved is a great treasure, a jewel in our soul, in our heart. How about leading, to have leading? feeling belonging, feeling like you're part of something. All these things are the riches of the grace of Christ Jesus. Every single need that we have, every need, is freely given to us in Christ Jesus. We get what we need if we'll come to him in humility and faith and receive his grace. And these riches that God promises to the people of Israel they're a picture of this for us, and we're going to see how perfect a picture it is as we keep going here. Everything that the world wants, they're given to anyone in Christ and everyone in Christ Jesus by faith. By faith. And that whole exchange of Jesus having riches and giving riches to us, and we access those riches by our faith, is called grace or living by grace. That's how it works. So how did the Israelites get these blessings? Did they earn them? Did you catch in the text what they did? They asked. They asked. They didn't earn them. What was so great about the Israelites that they are given such benefits, such blessings? And the answer is nothing. And probably less of nothing than you even think that I'm, I'm, I'm not stressing it enough. Nothing. These people are horrible. The Jews, the Israelites, they are not great. And I'm going to show you that right now. We're going to look at the spiritual state of Israel right now. Look at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is the third book of the Bible. You got to see this. Oh, the Israelites, God chose them because they were so special. Um, no. God chose them because they were so sweet to their children. No because they were so faithful. Maybe because they wanted it so bad. No, 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 no. 
We got to see what was so great about these guys. Let's see. Leviticus 17.7. God referring back to this time, he said, they shall no more offer their sacrifices to demons whom they, after whom they have played the harlot. He's talking to the Israelites. He's giving them instructions on how they should live in the promised land. And he said, you know one thing that you guys should probably stop doing? Sacrificing to demons. Let's start there. What? These people engaged with demons? Yes, that's the type of people God chose. They were, they were, they were playing the harlot. That means they loved demons. Now, they didn't call them demons. They called them gods, right? They call, but they had interaction with them. They would talk with them. A demon would appear to them and say, oh, I am the god of blah, blah, blah. And they would say, oh, we will sacrifice to you. Here, take my money. Oh, wasn't that great? Wasn't that exciting? Oh, wow, the world has so much to offer us. And God is like, stop. I am the only God that you can talk to. Do not talk to any of them. Don't sacrifice it. But this is the type of people we're dealing with. Now, let's go even further. Joshua 24, verse 14. So the people wander around in the desert for 40 years. God is like, just please sacrifice. stop sacrificing to demons. Please stop talking to demons. Please stop playing the harlot with demons. And, and then now, after they go into the promised land, he says here in Joshua 24, verse 14, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river, and in Egypt serve the Lord. So back up, we are in this time where they're in Egypt, and God says, you know what you, they were doing in Egypt? They were worshiping the demons, the gods of Egypt. That's what they were doing. They were just fine with that part of their life. What is the only thing that the Israelites cried about? The slavery, the being in bondage. That's the only thing they cried out, and they cried out to the Lord. And that's the only thing that they were upset with. But God was like, listen, if I'm going to save that part of your life, I want your whole heart. You can't love these other gods also. That's what's happening. But this is the kind of people they were. Even deeper, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 20. I guarantee you haven't read this verse in a while. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 6 through 9. He's, re- he's going to be teaching us back to what was happening in this, what we're studying now in the book of Exodus. And he says here, Ezekiel 20, verses 6 through 9. On that day, I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, Each of you, throw away your abominations which are before his eyes, and do not defile uh, with yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But then he explains what happened. But they rebelled against me, and they would not obey. They did not cast away their abominations, which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. In other words, he said, I should just destroy you guys here in Egypt. Okay, so during the whole time they were in Egypt, they were supposed to be loving God, worshiping God, but what did they do? They worshiped idols and they forgot about God. And God's like, I should probably just kill you because this is pointless. But he said this, 
but I acted for my name's sake, that it should be not profaned before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I made myself known to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So God says, I sh- if I was looking at you guys, I would have killed you. But I looked at the Egyptians, and I said, they know who I am, so I'm not going to kill the Israelites because I want the Egyptians to have a right view of who I am. Wow. These guys are not spiritually mature and worthy of being saved. But God says, I love you. I love the Egyptians too. But I'm going to save you and I'm going to make you a people for my purposes, not for yours. Not because you earned it and not because you deserved it. So we see four things in that text there in in, uh, Ezekiel. Number one, we see Israel worshipped idols in Egypt, which we've established by now. Number two, we see God argued with them about it, saying, stop, don't do it anymore, worship me only. Number three, we see Israel ignored them, ignored him, and blatantly defied him and said, I'm going to keep worshiping idols. So there. Number four, God said, well, I could kill you, but I'm going to deliver you for my own reasons, not because you are worthy or better in any way than the Egyptians. In fact, you're worse Because the Egyptians didn't know me. Abraham knew me. You're all descendants of Abraham. You should know me and you should be following me. And you're awful by worshiping these trashy uh, demons. It's like, I'm going to do this for the sake of those Egyptians. But look at the really key thing here is that they were unable to turn away from these idols. Idolatry. I was reading a book recently, and it was talking about our world today and how to talk to our world about sin and the gospel. And they said the one thing in our modern, postmodern, millennial society, the one thing that really works, if you talk to them about their sin right away, about God's laws and commandments, you're going to run into some uh, cultural problems in our culture. But they said the best way to talk with people in our world in this city is to talk to them about idolatry. Because people understand love. And idolatry is simply misordered loves. I have loved something more than I have loved God. And people actually respond to that type of thinking, that type of questioning and challenging. Do you love smoking weed more than you love God? That's a good question. Then you can get into them about why things are the way that they are and why sin is awful, whatever. But all I'm talking about is idolatry right here. Why were the Israelites unable to get away from their idolatry. They knew that they were enslaved. They knew they were enslaved, and they cried out to God, and he heard their cry, he came to deliver them, and they ignored the right thing to do after that. They still worshiped their idols. They wouldn't love God only. They wouldn't. They saw him, they saw his power, but they couldn't control their hearts. This is the point. They longed for their idols. This is going to be a constant problem, and it's still a problem today, except for there's only one solution to that problem. God says that's been the problem. All the way through Israel's history, they struggled with idolatry. But God came up with a solution. God said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a new heart inside you, 
one that can love me perfectly, obey all my commands, I'm going to do that for you. It's going to be a heart that proceeds from me. I'm going to actually take a little sliver of who I am, my spirit, I'm going to implant it in you, and that will now control your desires, and that's called the Holy Spirit. And that's what every believer in Christ receives now. We get that. And now we have a simple choice of whether we're going to be led by the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh, or we're going to live according to the flesh. We actually have a choice. These people in Israel, they show us what we are like in our natural state. They couldn't ever get away from idolatry. You can. How? By humbly coming to the Lord and asking for a new heart. God said, here, you know what you guys need to do? You need to ask for these jewels. Ask for this grace. Ask for this favor, unearned, unmerited favor, grace. Ask for it, and it'll be given to you. These people were ungodly, even as God is in the process of redeeming them. God's in the process of saving them. Still, they're all about idolatry. Can you go to Romans chapter 4, verse 5? Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Because what's really amazing about God is that it doesn't matter how bad you are, He can not only redeem you, but He can, by putting that Holy Spirit in you, He can change who you are on the inside. Romans chapter 4, verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Let me read that again. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. So it was a real basic principle. No work can justify a person. God doesn't ever look at what a person has does to determine if they are justified or not, or if they're saved or not, if they're right in God's standing, in God's presence. He, he doesn't look at what you've done. Only faith can save someone. Real, genuine trust in the person and work of Jesus for you. That's the only thing God looks at. It says right here, He says, you're all ungodly, but only the ungodly people who can trust, who have faith, only those people are right in God's sight. Yet, we learn that if your faith is real, the practical result of that faith would be a fruit of good works, righteous living. They're going to appear in your life naturally. So we can't, he says here, it's not him who does works that's right in God's sight. The faith has to come first. But when you have genuine, real faith, then works follow that. But we don't, we never put our trust in those works. We never say, well, I'm a Christian because I do these good things. We can't ever say that. We can only say, I'm a Christian because I'm a dirty, rotten, unrighteous person And I've asked Jesus to save me. And I believe that he has. That's it. That's the only thing that makes you a Christian. And if we abide in that and stay in that position of humble dependence upon Jesus, 
He then produces all manner of good works, everything that we need. He breaks those idols' control in our hearts. These good works are worked into our lives for us through God's grace. So even good works are some of the jewels and treasures that we're talking about here that God freely gives to us. He produces them. He gives them to us. Just like he worked out a way for these Jews to be blessed when they didn't earn it. There was no way that they could get these jewels or blessings on their own. Now, fast forward one page to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. He says, in Romans 5, 20, Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So these Israelites, we are reading that they are just awful, horrible, rotten, no good, dirty sinners. Just like the Egyptians. Yet, sin cannot stop the gift of God's grace. Sin can't stop it. And we have tons of sin. We're actually very much like the Israelites. We have idolatry more than we could ever imagine. We are totally unworthy of God ever doing anything good for us ever, ever, ever. Do you guys agree? Yeah, we are unworthy of him ever giving us a blessing, period. But he loves us. We're totally unworthy. God gave us the law for the purpose that we might begin to understand just how bad we are. That's why he gave the law. Not so you, hold, you, you hang them up in your, in your uh, living room and point to your kids every night and look at it yourself every night and say, these are the way I'm supposed to live my life. Okay? That is not what the law was intended to do because what you're doing there is you're, you're, you're trying to imitate what you know should be right in your life. The law. I know I shouldn't lie because it says right there, do not lie. But how does that change my heart? It can't. The law can never change a heart. Only God's grace and his love, a gift. When I see the law, I'm supposed to say, Man, I'm bad. Man, I break every single one of those. And just in case I thought I was doing okay, then I read Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus is like, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even look at a woman, or any of the ones he expanded upon. We, we, don't, we don't keep any of the law. It shows us how bad we might abound. And then it's a, that we are, how bad we are, it says that grace might abound. He says, the offense came, when the law came, offenses abound that God could give more grace so that we could begin to see just how good God is. See, when I look at the law and I see just how bad I am, I have no choice except to say, God, I'm a sinner and I need your grace. And then we begin to see just how good he is that he would abound towards us in grace in Christ Jesus. Because God's grace is greater than all our sin. He can wash away all our sin by the blood of Jesus, but also he produces the righteous behavior in a sinful heart that, that it's all done by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So keeping those Ten Commandments, I can take them down and put them in the closet now, that picture of the Ten Commandments, because I will naturally, when I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, I will naturally do what the Ten Commandments would tell me to do. And even more, even more. I want to tell you a quick story. There's, you guys know Zacchaeus. Was a wee little man. Wee little man, was he? Okay. <laughs> Zacchaeus, he, he was a, a dirty, rotten sinner. He was a tax collector, right? He goes and he, he meets Jesus, and Jesus is like, you're saved, I love you, I'm going to come eat with you, I'm going to forgive all your sins, you're forgiven. How about that, Zacchaeus? Just, just this crazy grace and love Jesus gives him. Never mentions the law at all. Just sits there and, hey, let's eat a meal now. And Zacchaeus just hanging out with Jesus, just talking with Jesus, realizing how much Jesus loves him, realizing how much he doesn't deserve that Zacchaeus just gets overwhelmed and just gets, just this change happens in Zacchaeus' heart. You know what he says? He's a, he just stands up and exclaims to all his dirty, rotten friends and everybody listening. He says, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give half of everything I own to the poor. And if I've ever wronged anyone as a text collector, which is everybody, I'm going to repay them back four times what I've wronged them. Well, the law never said to do those things. The law never says to give half your goods to the poor. The law never says repay four times. It says twice. If you've stolen something, repay twice. It never says anything about giving all you have to the poor. It doesn't. So Jesus, by his love and grace and changing Zacchaeus' heart, was able to accomplish vastly more than what the law could ever accomplish by someone just saying, oh, I think I need to try to do that. See, Zacchaeus had his heart transformed by God's grace. And the result was good works that were immeasurable. I mean, he's just received all these riches. To him, giving a little bit of those riches out is nothing. He was like, I'm so happy to be able to do this. That's the type of work that God's grace does in our hearts. That's why it's a vastly superior way of living than by law and legalism. Saying, you, you, you know what? Your life should look a little different. We should, you, let's put some rules in place in your life to see what happens then. God says it never works, not because rules are the problem, because you're the problem. Your heart, our hearts don't change when it comes to rule keeping. It doesn't ever change us. That's what his Holy Spirit and his grace does. His grace changes us, like Zacchaeus. It's a free gift, and the free gift of this grace is foreshadowed for us by these riches and jewels given to the Israelites by these Egyptians. Isn't that cool? Well, now let's move to the second half of our text here, where God announces the Passover plague of death. Then Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. So this is back in the throne room of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has just told Moses, get out of here. I'm no, I don't want to ever see you again. And if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. And Moses is like, yeah, you're not going to see me again. And we referenced that not have to have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness last week. But here he's coming back with this uh, prophecy. It says, the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as, not, as it was not like before, nor shall there be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast. That just means that 
it will be perfectly peaceful among God's people. They will not even feel the wind blowing. There'll be nothing for a dog to even bark at. Do your dogs ever wake you up barking in the middle of the night? Hate that. Anyway, uh, won't even be like that. And that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all, the, and all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow to me, saying, Get out and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. So Moses, this is pretty cool, he, he's, he, he, they have this little fight, him and, and Pharaoh, at the end of the last chapter, and Pharaoh's like, Get out of here, and Moses like, I'm going to get out of here. And then, then the Lord speaks to Moses in our first part of our chapter about his grace. And then he walks back in and he starts talking to Pharaoh again. And he's like, You know what? There's going to be another plague, and you're, your firstborns are going to die. And oh, I'm so ticked off at you because you just won't humble yourself. You're just so stubborn, Pharaoh. Right? He went out from Pharaoh. In great, and then he's like, you know what? You're, you're even your servants. They're going to come to me. They're going to bow down. And all the servants are like, what? And, and, and he's like, they're going to come to me. They're going to bow down. They're going to say, please go, please go. He's like, Pharaoh, you're so stubborn. He's ticked off. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you. So that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. So Moses, he gets super angry, and I think it's that type of anger that's like with a broken heart, because Moses knew, he grew up where? Egypt, in Pharaoh's household. These are his family. He, Moses is not like anti-Egyptian. He loved many of those people. He knew them. He did not want them to die. I mean, his friends were probably some firstborns. He's probably thinking in her mind, in his mind, you know, Jerry and Frank and Al, they're all going to die. And I can't, like, he's like, Pharaoh, if you would just humble yourself and let us go, they don't have to die. Why are you so stubborn, Pharaoh? Why are you so stubborn? Moses is feeling pretty devastated, and he gets pretty angry about it. You can tell that Moses had this hope that maybe one last argument would argue Pharaoh into heaven, you know, would, would convince Pharaoh to soften his heart. But God says, it's not going to happen. He's not going to listen to you. But you know what, Moses? I'll give you something you can hang on to. I'm still going to be glorified. He said there, that my wonders are going to be seen. I'm going to be glorified. These little, all the people, Moses, they're seeing what's happening. They see that Pharaoh's an idiot. They see that you're just, you love. They see it. And it's going to have an effect on their life. We're told that people are going to go to hell. People in this world are going to go to hell. People we know and people we love are going to go to hell. Jesus told us this. Uh, he called it Gehenna. That's the, and that word means outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, tormented in a, flake, a, 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 a flaming lake of fire. I mean, ugh, that's scary, right? And sometimes we, we share really intensely with our family or with a friend that we really love about the gospel, and we're just like, why are you being so stubborn? 
Jesus just wants to save you. Why, do you, why are you so stubborn? Again, it can cause us to kind of have this attitude. How does that make you feel that people are going to go to hell? Moses, he was angry about the death of people he knew and probably cared deeply about. Moses was upset about it. His heart was stirred. He pleaded with them and with the, the people he could. He laid it all on the line. He shared the truth in love. Do we care? Do you care as much as Moses does? Do we consider the eternal lives of those people around us? You're like, whoa, pastor. Didn't know this. Conviction was coming today. Well, here's, this is going to surprise you. I don't care if you care. I don't care if you care. We need to obey, whether you feel like it or not. We need to obey in humility and faith the command to share the gospel and love to everyone in this world. If you wait till you care, you are going to wait forever. Do you wait until you feel like obeying God's commandment to love your kids? To love them? I don't feel like changing your diaper right now. I'm not really into it. I don't feel like it. No, right? What about to love your wife? God gave you a command. I don't feel like it today. Do you wait until you feel like forgiving to forgive someone? You never will. Do you wait until you feel like obeying anything? No. I didn't feel like obeying the speed limit today. So that's why I ran it. I didn't feel like, uh, no, that doesn't work. In, it's called walking by faith and not by sight. You have to step out and obey God's word in faith and you never wait until you feel like it. That is not walking in faith or according to God's grace. That is walking by sight. But that's how the world tells us to live. You just love your boyfriend or girlfriend until you don't feel like it anymore. And here's what they do. They give us all these, these rom-coms, these romantic comedies. And in all of these movies, they, give you, they, they have a breakup maybe. And they give you one valid reason why there should be a breakup. Oh, well, he didn't remember my birthday. Or she didn't do this or that. Whatever the conflict is, they give you a valid reason why they should break up. And then they show you them breaking up and the person breaking up is completely justified because they didn't feel loved anymore or they didn't feel like being faithful and loving anymore. And it's developed in our world this idea that we must feel into it in order to obey. We have to feel it. Never wait until you feel like it. But won't it be insincere if I share the gospel and I don't really feel like it? Am I, gonna, am I not going to just seem like I'm a hypocrite? That's that mindset that the world has put into us. Because it's not insincere. Let me tell you why. Because sharing the gospel is the most loving thing you can do in anyone's life. Do you worry about loving your wife when you don't feel it? Sorry, honey. I'm only going to be faithful to you 
in love when I feel like it. I, can, I can't be dishonest with my feelings. I mean, my feelings are my God and I must obey them. That's really what's going on there. Moses, he was faithful to share the truth and, and God is and always be, will be glorified when we trust him in faith. He will be glorified. And many times he'll change hearts. In fact, many of the Egyptians are actually going to leave with the Israelites and they're going to get saved because of the ministry of Moses. They do DNA testing with Israelites, with Jews today, and there's still a portion of Egyptian DNA because of the great mixture that happened during that time. It's pretty amazing. God moved in the hearts of the people to listen to Moses and to believe. Even though it seemed like a thankless ministry, God was using it behind the scenes because you never know when someone's going to believe. It's, not, it's your job to communicate the gospel to them. It's not your job to convince them to believe. But we just faithfully share the truth with them in love, period. So let's wrap all this together that we've seen, and then we have one ending point, okay? So the first three verses, they showed us that God's powerful grace, uh, he, he is providing for us these unearned blessings, these, these jewels of grace to his chosen people according to his promises he made in Genesis and earlier in Exodus. Then we see that Moses presents truth to Pharaoh again, hoping he would repent, but he won't. And then Moses gets encouraged by God that God's going to be glorified no matter what. God's promises are for the good of his people through grace, and the judgment of the wicked is, is his justice. God is glorified by giving grace to you. He loves giving grace to you. He's also glorified by judging the wicked. Every knee is going to bow to Jesus. We're going to bow in thanksgiving for his grace. They will bow under judgment, being forced. So what's the difference between all the people that God blesses and all the people that God judges? What's the difference? Because we just saw that the Egyptians, I mean, they were idol worshipers, but that's just who they were. The Israelites were idol worshipers, and they should never have been. So what's the difference between the people that God is blessing and the people that are he's judging, Pharaoh, and the portion of the Egyptians that rejected God. One, one group believed God's word. They were just as evil, they were just as sinful, but God made promises to them, and they believed in their hearts that he wasn't lying, but he was telling the truth. One group did that. The other group hears God's word, hardens their hearts, and refuses to trust his word. That's the only difference. Both groups are sinners. Both hear God's word. One responds with faith. The other hardens their heart. And I'll prove it to you with one verse in Exodus chapter 4. We're going to back up there. We've got to link this chapter 11 to chapter 4. You should, in your Bible, put a little arrow and say, go read chapter 4, verse 31. Because what it says there. It says, so the people of Israel, the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction and they bowed their heads and worshipped. The only difference 
between dirty, rotten sinners A and dirty, rotten sinners B is faith. And, and there's dirty, rotten sinners A and dirty, rotten sinners B in, in our room here. There's no good people C. <laughs> that one doesn't exist. And the only difference is faith. Faith is what God is looking for. He's never asking you to be perfect, but he says, trust in me. Now, this affects our behavior, like we said before. When we trust in him and we learn how faithful and dependable he is, then we can look at our life and say, hey, my life doesn't line up with this one. I just looked at the law, which is okay. And the law tells me, uh, don't steal. And you know what? I'm stealing all the time. And my life is not lining up with what God says is right. But we, instead of tackling that ourselves, we know we're dirty, rotten sinners. This is just who I am. And so we come humbly before the Lord and say, Lord, help me to not steal. Change my heart. And that is the prayer that God answers. That's where you see the riches accessed, the jewels given. He says, hey, you want to live a righteous life? Then here you go. Here's my resources. That's our study for today. Thank you guys for hanging tough in there. I know it was long and deep, and I appreciate you guys. So let's stand up and worship the Lord. Just like the people who believed his word, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord. But we're going to stand, because that's the better way. Just kidding. So every time we gather in, in uh, uh, church or anytime you hear the word of God, even if you're having devotions and you feel like the Lord speaks to you, you have an opportunity to respond, to, to believe what's been spoken to you. And again, that's what our, our point for today was, is that believing is really the only thing that uh, separates us from the most wicked vile in the world, is believing. And God does a wonderful work of changing us when we believe. And so in this time, Lord Jesus, we want to come to you and we want to ask you to help us to believe. And Lord, like the guy who cried out, who, who needed your healing, Jesus, he cried out, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, we want to pray the same thing. We want to acknowledge that we are, um, we're not even good at believing. We need to learn how to put our trust in you fully and completely, even at new levels. Lord, our hearts are desperately wicked. We can't change ourselves. Lord, we look to you, Jesus. We trust in you alone. We call upon you. Even if it's the first time that we've called upon you for your salvation, Lord, we still are going to call upon you. Jesus, forgive us of our sin and save us. And Lord, for those who have walked with you many years, but maybe our hearts have grown dull or hard, and we don't necessarily believe all the word like we know we should, Lord, we repent. We want to know your word. We want to believe every part of it. That you will be faithful to answer our prayers. And even seasons of darkness and seasons of dryness, they will not change your faithfulness to answer uh, your promises and what you've promised to do in our lives.